the Sport Industry Access Podcast, episode 32. How do athletes cope under pressure during performance to deliver success? Welcome to another episode of the Sport Industry Access Podcast. I am your host, Ed Bowers. As always, my goal each week is to interview a special guest who is a sports professional in a specific field in the sports industry, especially if you have an interest in pursuing a career in coaching in any sport at any level. I hope today's episode can be useful to you with regards to your interests and needs. Now, getting back to today's show... This week's special guest is Dr. Dave Olred. Dave is an elite performance coach where he works with elite athletes around the world to support their needs so they can perform at the highest level whilst under pressure. For example, he has worked with different athletes in different sports like football, rugby and golf. So he's worked with athletes like David James, Johnny Wilkinson and Luke Donald. Dave is also in the UK coaching hall of fame for his contribution during the 2003 rugby world cup for his services in rugby dave was awarded an mbe from her majesty the queen in 2004 i can happily say that i'm very privileged to have dave as a special guest on the show that's why in today's episode dave will share his coaching career journey and explain how athletes cope under pressure during performance Dave, it's a privilege to have you on the show. Please, can you share your sports career journey to listeners? When did it all start? Um, well, I, I started, um, obviously, when I was at school, I was very keen on all sports. And then I did a, a sports science degree and then started teaching. And I sort of fell into teaching, really. Um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Um, but I learned so much from that teaching experience. And I taught uh, games, PE. Um, but then I found that it was a bit lopsided in terms of what I was doing. So I finished off a degree in economics so then I could qualify to teach A-level economics and, and sport. And I did sport and activities. And uh, as well as working with the elite players, I spent a lot of time working on ways to get people who weren't particularly gifted at sport to try and almost ignite their passion for just getting involved in something. And I would, I would doctor a lot of games so that people weren't being, um, if, if you like, embarrassed by losing. They were more concerned about playing. And that, and that started me off, really. And then I was, um, I was obviously playing rugby at that stage. Um, and the game was amateur then. And, and it led, led from there, really. I've always had an interest in why people... Uh, perform well in one area and not in another. And then I then went to another teaching job and then I got a job in education which allowed me to have any holidays I could pick them instead of having school holidays. I still didn't get any more holiday, sadly. And uh, then I was was then coaching Bath part-time 
when Jack Rowell was there. And then I got a call out of the blue to go and coach um, St. Jillawarra in Sydney, in Australia. Their pre-season was in our winter, um, sort of December, January. So I thought, well, this is a good call. Um, so uh, I did that. That really ignited my passion for coaching because it was the first time, you know, when you're teaching, it's fine, but you see, you know, 30 kids for an hour and then another 30 for an hour and so on. But this was a group of players, you know, that you had five days a week to develop them and so on. And I thought, yeah, this is actually what I want to do. Um, and then I was really lucky in that when I was coaching Bath, I went back and started coaching Bath with, with Jack Rowell. And then I started with Stuart Barnes and Jonathan Webb as kickers way back then. And people were a bit sort of, you know, what's going on? And then, cut a long story short, just prior to 95, uh, Rob Andrew contacted me. Um, if he was 94, it was after a year after London County played the All Blacks or something. And then I started with Rob Andrew, and at the same time, um, Adidas were very interested in what I was doing because there was no such thing as a kicking coach then, although already I was branching out into other things. And then uh, Adidas basically sponsored me to do a PhD in performing under pressure. Uh, and then one thing led to another. The game went professional sort of overnight after 95. Rob Andrew took the job as director of rugby in Newcastle. I was his first sort of assistant coach, and that was 96. The following year, I was selected for the Lions, 97. And then I signed with England after when I came back from that and stayed with them till 2006 or seven or whatever it was. But I've always been interested in other things because I feel that the answer to a lot of problems don't lie in the sport you're dealing with. They lie elsewhere because everybody has similar challenges, but everybody deals with them in a slightly different way. And, and sport as an arena could learn so much off each other if they would just uh, take the barriers down. That's really interesting. Just touching back from your PhD... How has that supported you looking back now? Um, well, it's, it's interesting because people do a PhD and you think you find answers. Actually, you just got ask better questions, you know, and that stimulated me to realize. I realized then there is no end point in this. You know, whatever you do, um, you, you can do what was a fantastic session. Uh, and I remember my tutor saying to me, so whatever happens, don't read your PhD. And I actually read it about a year ago, and I'm looking at it. Who wrote this rubbish? You know, because you change, you, you, you know, and, and I've always been trying to change. And you can do the best session ever. You think, right, I've really nailed it. That was really good. Two weeks' time, you'll go, actually, you know what? I could have done. And to me, that's, that is the thrill of it. I mean, in no two years are ever the same. And I'm always looking to get better at what I do. Not in terms of a dissatisfaction, but just a thrill of discovering. And often, you don't know how you can get better unless you do something. And what worries me is that, by and large, a lot of people spend time looking for the answer instead of doing something towards the answer. And then they will have a more clear 
idea and where the actual target is. And, and a lot of people just spend time, you know, um, having meetings after meetings after meetings and this, that and the other. And nobody does anything. And, and, and I'm the other way around. I just go straight into it and then find my way. I'm a great believer in get on the train as it's leaving the platform and then look for your seat. Don't look for your seat before you get on the train because the train will go. I love that analogy. Just for the listeners listening in and who aspire to be high-performance coaches, in your opinion, what core skills do you need? You know, there's a friend of mine, Mark Gibson, who is a head pro uh, at Royal Pines, and he, and he won Teacher of the Year Award two years in a row in Australia, which is no mean feat. Um, and on, the, on his desk, he's got a plaque, a wooden plaque, and it says, those who dare to coach should never cease to learn. So if somebody asks me, okay, what are the core skill sets? Let's say number one, have an insatiable curiosity for how you can get better. And the, the other thing I would say, if people are embarking on a sports science degree, see where it sits in the overall, um, if you like, map of performance. And, and don't specialize too early. You know, don't become, oh, I'm going to be a great biomechanics because you won't, you won't survive just doing that. You, you, and, and I would suggest to anybody, get involved in coaching, no matter what it is, at the same time you're doing your specialism and, and you will find that you'll be able to sit your skill set into the map of performance because you understand, you know, whether it's a, you know, under 13 soccer team on a Saturday or whatever, get involved, look at individual skills, look at unit skills, look at how the team performs, look at their reactions when they're getting beaten, look at their reactions when they're doing well, all of that, as long as you really observe that, then you, then as you're studying, it will start to fall into place and you say, oh yeah, I can see that now. And, and I do worry that sometimes we create this silo effect where people become very specialized, but they almost become so specialized, they nearly become irrelevant. I understand. I think you're highlighting a key point that for sports science students or anybody, even myself, it's the key is about exploring different aspects of the sports industry, especially in performance. Just relating to today's main topic how do athletes cope with pressure during performance? Well, the, the, the fundamental issue with, with performing under pressure is this uh, tension between process and outcome. Okay. And I think the easiest way, to, I, I sort of created this metaphor. Um, and essentially, if you're going to perform under pressure, you need to be totally immersed in the process and the outcome takes care of itself easiest thing in the world to say but the toughest thing to do okay and let me give you an analogy so let's just say that i've got a group of say five five uh students mixed students and i said right i'm going to teach you to do a standing long jump and we're going to do it on a gym mat on a floor okay and of course the standing long jump is a really good metaphor because you have to get to the point of no return you're going to be falling over before you jump so timing that is really important. You tip forward, and obviously, if you go too early, you jump up. And, of course, the idea is to cover ground, not to go up in the air. 
and you'll play around with it and you'll fall down maybe and you'll leave it and you'll overbalance and so on. But eventually you'll learn the skill and I'll teach you about flexing your legs and throwing your arms forward and making sure that you jump forward, okay? And everybody would be happy. And I, and I suspect that most people would be able to cover, you know, seven or eight feet, whatever. And some people might do nine or 10 feet. doesn't matter, okay? And we're doing that on the gym floor. And I say to you, okay, right, now you can adhere to that process, whatever happens, can't you? And, of course, everybody will go, yeah, 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 yeah. So go outside and there's a puddle six foot across. Would you jump it? And everybody, well, of course we'd jump it because at worst I'll get my heels wet. And everybody jumps in and it's all a bit of a laugh and so on. I said, right, brilliant, well done, everybody. The, 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 um, the puddle was six foot. Everybody clears it by seven foot, eight foot, even nine foot. Okay, fantastic. Okay. Then we go around the corner and there's two garages next to each other. And the, the, the top of the, the roof is 10 foot off the ground. And there's a gap, six foot. Would you jump it? Now it's a bit, oh, ah. Okay, so here we are. Now you're now jumping with consequence. Because if you don't get the outcome, you know, it's going to be a little bit of bad news, okay? And you will think through, and I'm going to say, well, I'll tell you what, now this is a difficulty. If you don't quite get this right and jump up in the air instead of tipping forward, looking down on the ground, 10 feet off the ground before you throw your arms, okay, you're going to, you're going to fall down anyway because you're going to be short. So that's the tension, you see, and then when you do that, the first time you do it, it'll be wow, and the heart will be going, and all the rest of it, and etc., etc. And then you want to think, well, what's it like to perform under absolute pressure in an international environment, fifty-story skyscraper, six-foot gap between the windows, jump. With regards to the work you do, then, how do you release this pressure? for these athletes, for example, when they're at that high stage? Well, it, it's not a question of releasing pressure. It's a question of managing it, accepting that it happens. Um, and the feeling of pressure and, and the sort of the adrenaline and all of that is a natural reaction. And without that, you're not going to get the energy anyway. So we do want adrenaline to be going around our veins. And you should enjoy it. It should become an excitement, not, a, not an anxiety or a dread. And then basically, it's actually working hard enough and practicing with consequence. So part of our practice to jump the skyscraper would be the 10-foot garage. You know, and, and, you know, you have to start training with consequence, albeit, you know, you can argue, well, a 10-foot garage, okay, it's not quite as bad because you'll fall down and you probably break your leg, all right? Skyscraper, you kill yourself, okay? But what I'm trying to get across is it's still consequence and you'll still be nervous, et cetera, et cetera. So once you overcome that, okay, then the skyscraper becomes easier, not easy, and then the whole thing about, okay, now I've got to rehearse. When is it? You know, my knees have to be blocking out my shoes as I look. If they don't get to that point, then I know I'm not tipping forward enough. If I don't tip forward enough and I'm actually looking down this big gap before I throw my arms, okay, that, that's tough. And that's the, the probably the best metaphor I've been able to create to try and illustrate that. And that's why it's process, 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 process all the time. And then we, we break that down and say, here's a metaphor, right? Let's try and jump three foot 
but only off one leg. Do you see what I mean? And then you start breaking out, right? Now we'll do dump three foot off the other leg. We can get to four feet. Now put both legs together and all of a sudden you've done eight feet. So there'll be a lot of things like that. And then the, 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 the crucial part is, and I've got this term earned confidence, is you have to keep data in training and practice. And most people don't. So how can I say to you, you can clear six feet. I can look you in the eye and say, you can do this. Why? Because you and I know that you have actually cleared eight feet and you've cleared five feet off one leg. So common sense, you know, you're, you're rational, even though you're looking down this 50 stories, you know you can do it. And, and the athlete has to know they're doing it. And, and really, that's, that's my role, is to try and create an environment where they earn the confidence. That's really interesting. Is this what inspired you to write a book about pressure? Yeah, really, because, well, also, what I was concerned about, there were, there were a number of reasons why I wrote the book, um, um, but one of them was, you know, I went through a sports science degree and so on and so forth, and, it, and, and sadly, um, it still silos you know, yes. And, and I think that, you know, you're not going to walk into a job to be a sports psychologist if that's what you want to do in a premiership soccer club. That's the dream job. There are thousands of people that want to do that job. OK, it's the bloke who actually sees where it all fits and can do a number of things, but especially like that. So I wanted to write the book. And all the chapters are different principles about performing under pressure. But none of them have headings that you'd recognize as, oh, that's sports psychology, or that's anthropology, that's management, that's learning, that's biomechanics. Because the human doesn't work like that. You know, we're not all segmented. We're just a being. And there are certain things that we respond to. Number one, we all respond to anxiety. So anxiety became a chapter, okay? We all use language, sometimes very, very poorly, in terms of, you know, we're trying to achieve something or we're trying to avoid something. So language is an important... And then when you unpick language, you can say, oh, this is like NLP, or, oh, here's a bit of psychology in it. I'm not really interested in the labels. I know that the use of language and how people think is vital to their potential performance. And then there's the training environment. Is the training environment the same as the match environment? You know, and then we look at behavior. So what behavior do I exhibit in training? And do I ever exhibit the same behavior in training as I need to in a match? You know, a, a ridiculous example is, you know, uh, um, you know, a golfer practicing hits 150 balls with an eight iron. Okay, and at the end of 150, he's really pleased because now, you know, the last 30 have been awesome and all the rest of it. But the only shot that counts is the first one. So, you know, what I mean, yes, there is relevance in practicing to groove and all of that. But that bears no relevance to the game of golf because the game of golf is one shot, one opportunity. So my question is, how many times do you do that? you know, rather than loading. Now, there is a place for loading, but people seem to take sanctuary out of that loading because it's mentally comfortable, whereas random shots 
you know, either on your iPhone or whatever you're going to do, where suddenly a yardage comes up and you have to hit the yardage and you don't know what's coming next. That's tough. But that prepares you far better for a golfing environment than just hitting ball after ball after ball. And so you've got that behavior match. And, and then I, I looked at sensory shutdown, um, about how the body sort of caves in a, a little bit. And then the balance of implicit and explicit learning, how too much information can clog people up. And the last one was the sort of the teacup formula, how to put it all together and, and look at how if you have the right thoughts and can-do thoughts, then a lot of what you do when you perform well is in your subconscious. But if you have negative thoughts that creates doubt, then you start unpicking what should be in your subconscious and, and then things go wrong because there's just too much clutter going on. So that was th those were the sort of principles and, um, you, you know, just I just adhere to them now almost, you know, verbatim, not in terms of the specific application, but the principle of it. And then it's been shown time and time again that it works. You know, and I just started working with a golfer who's done particularly well at the end of the season. And it was all basically because we looked at behavior matching and really put him up under the cosh well before the tournament and in, in, a, in an environment that was mentally brutal so that the tournament became easier. You know, and then the tournament, the mantra for the tournament was, look, all you have to do is do what you can do already B because that was so tough. And then it became, to win this tournament, I just have to do what I do. Whereas a lot of people who train comfortably, when they come to the tournament, they think they have to do something different. And that's when, it, when they come unstuck. Just relating back to your book, even what I'm learning from what I've read, I feel like a lot of it can be applied to the real world. And I think that's just as important as well, not it has to be related to a sporting environment. Just going back to your career, what do you enjoy the most looking back from your career? You know, it, it, I, I'm, I'm just blessed with so many highlights. I mean, there have been obviously the high-profile highlights, like the Lions Tour in 97, um, Luke Donald winning the double money list, um, whenever it was, 2010 or wherever, the... Um, the World Cup in 2003. I mean, all of those were very high profile. But, you know, sometimes the most satisfying thing is when you're dealing with just, I mean, I, I don't want to say normal person because I think everybody's normal. You know, I don't, I don't really care. You know, it, everybody is the same. It's just occasionally somebody can do extraordinary things. But they're all normal people. But it, it's like, you know, I, I'm teaching a 74-year-old woman to play golf. You know, and, and then she goes on and becomes ladies captain and really takes on the game and so on and handicap comes down. I mean, all right, it came down to 20, but she's 74 before she picked up a club. Now, that, that, that really gives me a right. I actually think, you know what, I've made a difference here. And, and when I've coached coaches and then they, they've actually gone and done sessions and tried ideas and they've come back and said, you know, the kids were much better. They really got involved. And I think, you know, that is worth it because I've now had an impact on 150 kids that I otherwise couldn't have done. 
and I'm not, there's only one of me and I've worked with these coaches and now the kids are getting the benefit. That, that actually, I get a lot of satisfaction out of that. And so it's anything where people have doubts and, and I try and prove them that, that you can do this. You know, my starting point is always, I look at you and I go, how good could you be? And a lot of people go the other way and say, well, you know, you're never really going to make it. You're too short. You're not very fast. You're not, da, 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 da. you know, and, and it's the wrong way around. So if, if I had to encapsulate what I'm trying to do with adults, what I'm trying to do with adults is to um, almost inject a four-year-old's enthusiasm for learning something new and ignoring when it doesn't match their intention and just get on with it and just have a bit of wow. And then they can learn. And a lot of people say, you yeah, know, well, when adults get older, when adults get older, they get negative. That's the bottom line. You know, they can do it. Okay, that's my starting point. And, and I really do believe that. Whoever you are, whatever you're doing, you can get better at your own margin. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think the biggest thing I'm learning at the moment in regards to this podcast journey is people lack enthusiasm. And I think it sort of relates to what you're saying about adults. And I feel like we're at a great stage of the interview where I'd like to finish with an inspirational question. What advice would you give to university sports students who want to pursue a career as a high-performance coach? Well, first of all, I would I just try and take the high-performance out of it and go with a coach and then see where that leads. I mean, problems, that, you know... High-performance coaching, in reality, is actually not coaching. I, I know that sounds crackers, but it becomes more organizational. Because if you're on a high-performance end of something, 90% of the players can do 90% of the stuff anyway. So it's a question of organizing them. And, and, and coaching, to me, is managing somebody's learning. OK, so if you take a typical example, let's look at the NFL, you, you know, the National Football League in America. Right. Everybody says the NFL coaching is just brilliant. And kind of and the coach is it coaching. If coaching is managing people's learning, it's not coaching. It's incredible organization and massive patterns of learning drills and patterns and timing patterns and repeating over and over again and specialisms. Brilliant. I can't take anything away from there. But if you want to look at real coaching and teaching somebody to do something that they've hitherto couldn't have done before, then you need to go and look in high schools because that's where the coaching comes from. And if you could start by coaching kids, I mean, one of the things I do with my elite uh, elite players, if I work with an elite player and teach him to kick or teach him a particular type of kicking or so on, I say, look, you go back to your mini rugby club, get hold of an 11-year-old kid and teach what I've taught you because you can see yourself in that, in that environment. You can see, and I'll guarantee you, the corrections you're trying to get across to this kid are exactly the same that I say to you, and you'll see it. And the reason I do that is that I want to create a much deeper understanding of what I'm teaching them. And if you teach somebody to teach, their depth of understanding has to be far greater than if you teach somebody to perform. That sounds really interesting. And I think it's a great concept as well. I did tennis coaching once upon a time and 
I wish I heard this earlier, to be honest, because I think you're right. If you can do it at the lowest level at grassroots, it'll be a lot easier to apply with elite athletes high up the spectrum. Out of interest, Dave, how can people interact with you? With regards to your website? You know, some people ask for specific advice. Some people I'm doing a sort of no limits diary, which is a thing that comes out each year and and it changes. And and really the front page is, if you like, about mindset and resetting and so on and so forth. But it's, you know, when I say about see things that you can do rather than see things you can't do, this diary tries to um, create a behavior change because you have to write down three things every day. You have to write down at the end of the week why you're better on Monday and so on and so forth. And all I'm interested in is progress. Now, they can contact me through the website. Um, I'd like to think that um, if they can possibly read the book, I I, I really wrote part of that from the heart in terms of, you know, I, I did take on convention uh, about the silo impact and so on. And the reason why I would ask somebody who wants to be an elite coach to start, if you like, at at a junior end is if you become an elite coach, you get very distorted very quickly. Whereas if you are, let's say, for the sake of argument, you're going to do biomechanics, all right? And And you're absolutely rock solid at biomechanics, all right? But where does that fit in? So if you then go and join uh, you know, uh, England Sport or something like that, and all you do is that, you will not be as effective as somebody that actually says, do you know what, I, I coach basketball, you know, 14-year-old kids the evening, and I, very interesting seeing how they jumped and how they didn't quite understand it and so on. I was able to help them and tell them about center of gravity and the hanging thigh and that's how you get height and da da and so on. So my biomechanics became useful, but it became useful in one little segment of the overall coaching. So I now see where biomechanics comes in and then you're much more effective. You know, so that that's my advice. Whatever specialism you're doing, you know, and the other thing is, is to try and get a coaching qualification in anything because that will broaden your understanding of sport. And, and don't limit yourself to one sport. You know, I, I, honestly, I, I when we started this program, I talked about, you know, often the answers in sport. I will tell you now that I have become a better rugby coach from coaching golf, which I know sounds crackers. And I actually become a better golf coach because of my experience in golf and rugby. And both of those benefited from me getting involved with, it, with Australian rules football with the West Coast Eagles. So, you know, they all interact. And, and it's interesting. I've been invited to potentially take on a tennis player. Right. And now you're going to say to me, well, what on earth is tennis player? Got? I'll tell you this. The serve to win the match the drop kick to win a World Cup, the putt to win a championship, okay, the penalty to win a shootout, it's exactly the same. It's the same mental challenge and the same conflict of process versus outcome. And if I have to go into another environment like tennis, which I've coached tennis coaches before, but I haven't coached a, a, an elite tennis player, okay, then I will learn something as well. So, so don't ever say no to any opportunity in any environment because you will learn from it. And the crazy thing is you don't know what you're going to learn until you go there. 
So don't sit back and go, well, I'm not sure what I'm going to learn, therefore I'm not going to do it. When the phone went from the West Coast Eagles and said, we'd like you to come and coach, I hadn't even seen the game live. Never even seen the game. And the first thing I said, well, yeah, I'd love to. And then I put the phone down and thought, jeepers, now what have I done? But it was the most enjoyable experience. I learned so much. They learned a lot of me. I brought a different view to what they were doing, and it made them reassess, not in an arrogant way, just this is a guy from outside, and often from outside you see a lot more than if you're in it, as we know, from day to day. So never say no to any opportunity. Dave, that is great, and I really do hope the listeners take that piece of advice on board. And all the listeners listening in, uh, Dave's website and his book, I highly recommend the read, will be on my website relating to this blog post. Dave, it's been an absolute privilege to chat with you this evening. Thank you very much. You're you're most welcome, and I hope it's been useful. Wow, what an incredible interview by Dave. The first thing I said to him right after we finished was, thank you. I was just so humbled to listen to all his coaching philosophy in a space of half an hour. And... Gosh, if you need the tips of why you want to get into coaching or how you want to be a high-performance coach or where do I start to be a coach at schools, there are all your answers. There's no tricks. There's no magic wand. It is all there. And it all comes down to having no fear, really exploring what you enjoy and where do you want to make a difference in the coaching spectrum. So if you want to get involved, firstly, read this book, read Dave's book. It is brilliant. I read it literally three weeks ago and that's when I contacted him because I knew with regards to the audience who listens to the show, it would create benefits that can make a difference to what you want to do in the sports industry, not just coaching, but any aspect, because these principles are applicable. So please purchase the book. You will reward yourself. Now, as always, at the end of each interview, I like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker. Dave said, don't ever say no to any opportunity in any environment because you will learn from it. The crazy thing is you don't know what you're going to learn until you go there. <laughs>